um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me, um, not to 1 Samuel, but to Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, we are um, not so much taking a break as explaining, as, as I want to explain, um, what is to come in 1 Samuel chapter 28, uh, as we started looking at what is commonly called the witch of Endor, um, or I think rightly, more appropriately, she would be a necromancer. Um, but uh, the, the, the hope of uh, what God has done in the world and, uh, and on the incarnation and ultimately how God has uh, solved uh, the, uh, uh, the spiritual problems and issues through Christ. So uh, in uh, Isaiah chapter 9, if, you ha- and you're phys- if you're physically able to do so, I want you to stand with me. As we honor the reading of God's holy and written word, as we look at the hope of the incarnation, the hope of the coming of Christ, uh, and what he does in the world. Uh, and so Isaiah chapter 9, uh, beginning, we'll begin in verse 6 and just read verse 7, 6 and 7. And uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, and I pray you would hear the word of the Lord with me this morning. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name should be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice. From hereafter, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we look today upon the hope that the coming of Christ and the incarnation brings to us. My prayer now is that you would help us to see how this has ultimately changed uh, our, uh, not just our predicament in giving us the hope of Christ, but ultimately through Christ you have defeated all cosmic powers. And God, we ask now that you would glorify yourself and your name in this time together and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you. And be seated. It is interesting how a baby and how babies themselves can change so, so many things, so, so very many things. Um, one, uh, one child can change lots of things. I, uh, I, I love history. And uh, while I was preparing for this, I don't know that I've ever told this story before. Uh, if I have, please forgive me. Uh, but... Um, uh, it's one of my favorite stories that came out of that, that comes out of the Civil War. Uh, it was a, it's a story uh, in, that comes from the year 1864 uh, in Petersburg, Virginia. Uh, the Confederate Army and the uh, the Union Army were there facing one another. Uh, the idea of uh, of a glorious charge and uh, a glorious, uh, uh, quick, uh, easy battle on either side had long given way to just a monotonous warfare with with many many casualties and now they found themselves in the dark winter of 1864 facing again one another general lee and general grant's armies faced one another general lee had a um had a uh, a major general uh and uh named george pickett and uh in this dark winter evening in 1864 Pickett's, uh, Pickett had been told that his wife had given birth to a brand new healthy baby boy. And so all of the celebra- celebratory fires were lit. And of course, Grant uh, decided to send a, uh, send a reconnaissance uh, over to figure out what was going on and what the fires were for and the shouts. And 
uh, he, he discovered quickly, they discovered quickly that it was, they were celebrating uh, that, uh, that uh, Pickett's wife had given birth to a healthy baby boy, boy and that these were celebratory fires. Pickett and Grant were, were good friends um, at one time, and so um, Grant uh, ordered that celebratory fires also be lit up and down the Union lines. And so for a great many hours on this dark winter's night in 1864, along the Union and Confederate lines, there were celebratory fires and singing. There was much to celebrate as, the, as enemies uh, uh, celebrated together a birth of, of, of an infant. It's an interesting story, I, I think, uh, in, in, that serves to, to show the peculiarity of, of, of that night uh, a night when there was just celebration, no shots fired, no, no yelling back and forth, no war being fought, but simply a celebration of a baby boy who was born. Only light, only light up and down the Confederate and the Union, soul, uh, the Union lines. It's, it's an interesting story. Um, as I said, I love history and I love these types of stories. It's, a, it's an interesting story. But it does, I think, point us to the reality of not only just, just the beauty of, of a brand new infant being born, but also the importance of what Jesus Christ has done for us in coming and robing himself in human flesh and coming to us and incarnating himself in, in human flesh. And in the incarnation, God has, has given us more than just a temporary flicker of some celebratory fires up and down enemy lines God has rather instead lit an eternal flame through Christ and has given us uh, through this event hope, hope the hope of, of Christ, the hope that is given to the world that cannot and will never be snuffed out. It is a, it is a story that affirms for us the importance of what the Father has done. And so this morning what I wanted to do is I want to spend just a few minutes contemplating the Incarnation contemplating the incarnation and the hope that Jesus' is, is coming into the world truly does give us. And so this morning, let's meditate together in Isaiah chapter 9, verses, uh, verses 6 through 7. It's an interesting passage. Isaiah has, um, has to this point, um, has been talking about uh, uh, the dimness and affliction of, of different places and uh, but he's given, uh, he's given hope because Jesus himself will be quoted. This passage earlier in this ver- chapter, Jesus is, uh, this will be quoted um, of Jesus in chapter 9, verse 2, when it says, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them has the light shined. And ultimately Isaiah then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, goes on and explains what this means and the only reason that people can see this great light and have the hope of that though they even walk in the shadow of death they can have this hope is because as as Isaiah says here in chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 for to us a child is born to us a son is given and our savior in our incarnation of Christ is in fact God who is with us it's an amazing reality for us because so many, so many people, um, when they were looking for the king to come, they were not looking for a baby. They were not looking for a child, but instead they were looking for a, a royal king to come. And yet God, he gives us in Christ, in Jesus' becoming human, in Jesus' becoming flesh, Jesus gives us a bright future and a hope. 
And that's what it even says. I mean, think about it this way. The gospel doesn't start with John 3.16. It just doesn't. I know that lots of people start there with the gospel, John 3.16. Oh, that's where the Bible starts, right? No, wrong. The Bible starts with the gospel back in Genesis chapter 1 with God's creation. Uh, You say, well, that's a very strange place for God to start. But I would say to you that even more so is it then revealed through the creation of Adam and Eve and ultimately through Genesis chapter 3 with the fall of man. That is, that uh, the promise was given in Genesis as early as Genesis 3.15, that the Messiah, the, the, the one who was to come, the seed of the woman. By the way, if you are wondering, um, even that itself points us forward to the virgin birth. You say, well, what do you mean? How, how, can, how can that point us to the virgin birth? Well, how can a woman have a seed? It's impossible. right? The seed of the woman, uh, it's an impossibility. And it was not a reference to Adam, it was in reference to Eve and the fact that there would be one who would come who was born of the woman, who was born out of the woman, who was of the woman's seed. And Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 points us directly to that reality and that he was, born of a, he was to be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. He would be the son of God, Psalm 2, 7. He would be descended from Abraham, Genesis 22, 18. He would be from the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49:10 he would be from the family in the tribe or from the family of Jesse in Isaiah 11:1 and of course ultimately he would be of the house and lineage of David himself Jeremiah 23:5 matter of fact the old testament goes on to tell us that that this this god who would wrap himself in flesh would even be born in Bethlehem in Micah chapter 5 verse 2 Psalm 72.10 tells us that he would be presented with gifts and that in Jeremiah 31.15 he would even be threatened. And ultimately in Isaiah 7.14 he would be both God and man. And this God who became man, this God who became human, would be God who is with us. Not just God over us, not just the God who created us, not just the God who is, <clears throat> who is the transcendent creator, but that he would ultimately be the virgin-born God who is with us. And he would personally rule his people. Because notice what it says here. It says, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Literally, the dominion of his rule. That's literally how that would be translated. The dominion of his rule. The foundation for his rule and dominion. Ultimately, it's a reference to his kingdom. It's ultimately a reference to the fact that we are living in an already but not yet tension of living in God's kingdom. And so let me ruin to you the song perhaps that we sang this morning that we've always considered a Christmas song. It is in fact a Christmas song, but it is more than just a Christmas song. When we sing joy to the world, we are not just singing a Christmas song, we are singing a triumphant song. We are not just singing about God becoming flesh. We are singing about the conquering king who has already conquered. Let the earth receive her king, we sang. Let the earth receive her king. And so the earth has already recognized the reality of the, by groaning, waiting for the already but not yet tension to be fully resolved. And so we read of, of, of brothers, uh, faithful pastors long ago, a, a brother by the name of Vance Havner said this, The incarnation is based on an exchange of gifts, the gift of God to man, his son, and the gift of man to God. When we first give ourselves 
to God. It's interesting that we look at Luke 2.11 when we see the promise when it says, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, because Jesus is God with us, we have the hope of being with God forever. He isn't just God with us, but we are now united with Christ, united in Christ through faith and forever to be with the Lord himself in heaven. And that's why Paul would tell us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We don't have to wonder whether or not we're going to get there. We don't have to wonder whether or not because of, because of Christ we, we, don't have the, we don't have the I hope so's, we have the I know so's. We know that because we have trusted in Christ, we are, we are, in, um, we are in, uh, in, in the hope of, of faith, trusting in Christ. And so the incarnation isn't about a baby. The incarnation is about the God-man who came to save us from our sins who came to save us from our sins. And so second of all, not only is he God with us, but he is the God who, who, is above, who has a name that is above all names. In verse 6, look what it says in Isaiah chapter 9. He says, and his name should be called. And then he lists this wonderful list of all these different names that he is promised to give. Or he has promised, right? Or he already is and has, but he, he's promised to make them known. Look, look, what they, look, look what they are and what they, what, they, what they tell us, what they let us know about this God that we serve. So not only is he going to be God with us, but his name should be called what? His name should be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So what does it what does it mean? What, why did Isaiah prophesy this about the 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 God Man who was to come? Why is it that the God Man would have these names? Why is it that Jesus would ultimately be given the name that is above every name in Philippians chapter two? Why is it? Well, look what they mean. First, when he says wonderful, in other words, what Isaiah is saying is he will be clearly exceptional and distinguished. Now. Isaiah will go on in Isaiah 53 to say that there was, there was nothing in his personage uh, when people looked at him that would ever say, well, this has to be the God-man. So when he says that his name will be called Wonderful, what is he in reference to? Well, ultimately, those of us who not only see him in faith and see his true worth through faith, but also to the world. That in Philippians chapter 2, Paul, through the Spirit, promises that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every, every, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is the, what is the name that is above every name? What's, it's not the name Jesus. It's the name Lord. It is the name Lord. And so Jesus is Lord, is the promise that brings glory to the Father. And so this wonderful counselor, this wonderful God who comes to us, will clearly be seen as exceptional and distinguished. All the nations will one day see this. All the nations will once day, one day confess this. All the nations will one day bow down and confess this to the God of heaven. But he will also be called counselor. Now, so often in, in, throughout the, the life and lineage of Jesus, we often think that there was only one counselor given to us. And when we do, we usually think of the Holy Spirit. Right? Jesus said, I will give to you a counselor. But that's not actually what Jesus said. Jesus says, I will give to you another counselor. 
I will give you another counselor. And his name is the Holy Spirit. So who is our first counsel? Who is our first counselor? Who is our first of honorable rank? Who gives us aid and helps us? Who intercedes for us on our behalf? And his name is Jesus the Messiah. Jesus Christ. And so he is the one who is the giver of counsel, who is honorable of rank. He is the one who is worthy of all honor and glory because he alone, as almighty God, is able to counsel us in all things. Second of all, he says the mighty God. We see him as the mighty God. Well, what does he mean by the mighty God? Well, simply, again, we're drawing point from Isaiah 9-7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So when he calls, so when Isaiah calls him under the Spirit's inspiration, the mighty God, what he is calling him is the conquering king. He is calling him the conquering king, the conquering God, the God who is to conquer. We actually have a similar um, understanding all the way back in the book of Genesis. There's an interesting figure there that we meet, and his name is Melchizedek. And he is simply called the, uh, he is called the priest of God Most High. God Most High. And this is the understanding that's given here of the phrase or the title, Mighty God. He is the God who is Most High. He is the God who is worthy of all praise and will conquer and place his enemies underneath his footstool once and for all. But then he goes on, he lists a, a rather interesting, and, and maybe for some of you, maybe for some of us, a troubling, uh, a troubling uh, reality because he calls this child the everlasting father. Well, how can Jesus, the son, be called the everlasting father? Well, simply it means the one, the father, the, the source of all eternity. The source of all eternity. So he is the father, the beginner, the, uh, the, the, the originator of, of, of all Things which we know in Colossians chapter and in the book of Colossians is very clear that Christ is the is the one through whom the Father and the Spirit themselves created. They created the Father and the and the Spirit and the Son together, created through the Son, and started what we now know as time and space. But he's also called the Prince of Peace. Well, how can how can he be called the Prince of Peace again? How is it that this King this can be called Prince of Peace? Well, it's seen in the very name. He is exceptional and distinguished. He is the one who is of honorable rank and the giver of counsel. He is the conquering God and the one through whom all things exist. And he is the one upon whom all his government shall be upon his shoulder and there will be no end of of it. So how can he be the Prince of Peace? He is the one who brings and gives peace. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we say, well... Uh, There is no real peace on earth. Well, I say to you, well, it may not appear that there is peace. It may not appear as though anything is happening. But to to see that would be, to say that, I think, would be very short-sighted. You say, well, why would that be short-sighted, Pastor? And I would say to you, because is the gospel not being preached? Is the gospel not moving forward? Is the gospel not being heralded? Does the gospel not overcome tyrants and tyranny? Does the gospel not overcome wickedness? Does the gospel not destroy that which seeks to destroy it? Does the gospel not overcome unbelief and faithlessness? Does the gospel not proclaim the victory of God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ? I would say to you, it most certainly does. 
And yes, yes, most certainly, though we may say uh, with, uh, with, the, with the hymn writer who said, uh, you know, I bowed my head because there is no peace on earth, I said, right? On the, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. We may say that, but because hate is strong and it mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And yet to understand that is, not to, is, to, is to misunderstand the work of Christ to the gospel. The gospel is not an invitation. L- listen to me carefully. And I want to be careful how I say this. The gospel is an invitation in one sense, but the gospel is also not an invitation. The gospel is the king of heaven's demand that every knee bow now and every tongue confess now that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because either we bow now or we bow later, but we will bow either in subjection because we have been subjected by Christ or in humility and in humble subjection where we humble ourselves before him and confess Christ now. It is interesting that it has been said, I don't remember where I found this, but it has been said If our greatest need had been information, God would have certainly sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist or an economist, excuse me. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was salvation, and so God sent us the Savior. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth. By the way, when it talks about those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, it's not just talking about uh, mankind. This is not a way of speaking just of mankind. There are three different ways that Paul is speaking about this. Those in heaven, not the saints in heaven. But the rulers of heaven, the angels, the seraphim and the cherubim and the other beasts and things like that that are there, the heavenly rulers that God has placed, and also those on the earth, that is mankind, and those under the earth, that is, that the demonic itself will bow its knee, that the, that the, that the kingdom of Satan will be forced to bow its knee. The kingdom of Satan will bow its knee ultimately, and Satan himself will be forced to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so because of this, we see God's name is holy. And then we see God's name is holy. We see God as the one true and living God, the one who, who is worthy of our, of our worship and our respect, of our reverence, and the one to whom we flee in times of distress and hardships. Lastly, then, thirdly, I would simply draw your attention to this in verse 7. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from hereafter, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting how, how Isaiah mentions this here? Um, it, it is it is very interesting, I think, um, because of which, uh, when you go to the book of Daniel, and you read in the book of Daniel of Nebuchadnezzar's great dream about his statue, ultimately, 
Um, it says that the statue is smashed to pieces by a rock that is hewn, not by human hands. And isn't it interesting that Isaiah gives us a glimpse of what Daniel will later prophesy in just a few years' time, will later prophesy of this kingdom that said that once it is cut and it smashes the statue, then this rock, this boulder, will grow into a giant mountain and it will fill the earth. It's an amazing reality for us to think of. It's an amazing reality because God is our sovereign ruler. He's not just our savior. Yes, most certainly he is our savior, but he's also our sovereign ruler. And as a result, we trust him. We trust him and we bow the knee to him now. We bow before him now as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So much of what is wrong, I think, in Christendom today is that we try to we make, we make ugly little sounds out of the, uh, and, and try to uh, um, leave Jesus in a manger somewhere, but, but that was never the point. The point was never the manger. The point was always the cross. And our God, our Savior, who is the sovereign ruler of over all things, we trust him because he is the sovereign ruler of the fact that his, over, of the increase in his government and peace, there is going to be no end. There will be no end. It will increase. It increases now in the lives of God's people as we surrender to his sovereign will. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, what did Jesus tell us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's what we're praying for. It's what we should be praying for, surrendering to his will. That God, God's increase is, is increasing in our lives increasing in making in making children out of his enemies in Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 10 we're told very clearly that this is this is the point of the cross uh, not only here but also in first John what well, what is it that Jesus has done it is to make enemies it is to to make a spectacle out of Satan and the enemies of God and to triumph over them Colossians as well points this out uh, but also in Romans chapter 5 it is also to make children out of the enemies of God it is to make sons and daughters out of the enemies of God. And God's, God's kingdom grows and it ever increases as enemies are made children. As peace is proclaimed through Christ. But also it increases because it cannot be defeated. You say, but, but it seems as if secularism and atheism and all kinds of these things, this just seems like this is just growing. It, it, look, I'm not going to say that, that, that there are not sections and sectors in which it does seem that secularism and all these things are, are, are growing. But can it ever defeat the gospel? Can it ever defeat the kingdom of God? Right? Kim Jong-il and all of his North Korean craziness and Iran and their ayatollahs and all the rest of those guys, can they defeat the gospel, can they defeat the kingdom of God? Can China, right? And President Xi, can he defeat the kingdom of God? Can we in America with our secularism defeat the kingdom of God? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because in the gospel, there is a proclamation. The gospel proclaims the victory of God. And it's through the gospel, God God continues to conquer. I would simply say this to you, um, sort of in closing here. I would say to you that in speaking of the increase of his government, we who are in Christ, we need to understand that because God is who he is, 
We can trust his faithful promises. I say, well, now, wait a minute. Where, where do you get that? Well, look with me here in Isaiah chapter 9. Look what it says here. Right? Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment, with justice, from hereafter even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Don't pass over that last phrase. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It will accomplish this. For this reason, in other words, God is going to accomplish this. Because of who he is and because of what he's promised, God cannot and will not relent. He will not relent from his promises. God will not relent. Samuel Rutherford, the great Puritan, uh, Scottish Puritan, said this, Your guide is good company and knoweth all the ups and downs of the way. Therefore, trust the nearer the dawn the darker. It's true. When things seem to be at their worst, we simply look to the horizon because dawn draws near. Christ draws near. Daniel 2.44, listen to this. This is what I was referencing earlier. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall never be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. This should give us hope in preaching the gospel. This should give us hope in calling sinners to repentance and faith in Christ. Because God in the gospel calls sinners to submit to his authority. He calls them. He calls them to repent and to turn to faith in Christ. But ultimately, do you see what happens even if they don't? It's not going to stop him. His kingdom will break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, all other kingdoms. And his kingdom is going to stand forever. And I'm not just talking about the millennial kingdom, right? I'm talking about his kingdom forever and ever will be established, is established and will continue on. It is an eternal kingdom to which you and I, if we are in Christ, we belong to this kingdom. If you're not in Christ this morning, you do not belong to this kingdom. You cannot belong to this kingdom. It is impossible for you to belong to this kingdom. The only way into the kingdom is through Jesus Christ. He is the door and the gateway through which you must come, confessing your sins, repenting, and turning to, tr to trust Christ. Not your self-reliance, not your self-righteousness, not yourself, but Christ turning away from yourself and turning only and trusting only in the work of Christ, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But for those of us who are in Christ, we are now part of this kingdom. We are called to submit to the authority of Christ and to his kingdom, and we are called to work for his kingdom. We're called to work for his kingdom. There is victory. We don't work for victory. My brothers and sisters, we work from the ground of victory. We work from the grounds of victory, not for victory. Christ has already won. We simply are called to proclaim the gospel in our families and to our families and to our friends and to our neighbors and our co-workers. And on and on it goes. We are called to preach the gospel to sinners, calling them to repentance and faith in Christ so that the kingdom of God would spread and be gloriously seen throughout the world. Because it's going to. It's going to. 
And so let us hope in the incarnation. Let us look to Christ because he gives us hope, the hope of salvation, the hope of life, the hope of of, of being with the Father for all eternity, having been forgiven of our sins. And so let us look to Christ together now. In Jesus' name, let's look together. Father, we ask that you would help us to look to Christ. Uh, Father, we thank you that your Son was made flesh, that he was robed in flesh, that he was fully God and fully man, complete and clothed in Christ, and clothed in, in one being, one human, Jesus the Messiah. And we thank you for this truth. We thank you for the hope that he gives us, that of the kingdom and the increase of his government, there's not going to be an end. And all the, all the forces of hell and man cannot stop the advancement of the kingdom. And God, we ask now that you remind us of this. You remind us constantly of the hope of the incarnation and the victory of God through Christ. And let us take refuge in Christ if we have not. And for those of us who have taken refuge in Christ, may we rejoice and cling to the promises and faithfully proclaim the way of salvation to those who do not know and who have not heard. God, that we would proclaim the good news of the gospel to everyone everywhere in the hopes and with the prayer that they would repent and you would work sovereignly to draw them to faith in Christ. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.